you open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to grab one under one of the chairs in front of you. You can find Ephesians 2 on page 947. This morning is the third message in a mini-series that started with the gospel and politics that extended to the gospel and week last Sunday on Orphan Sunday, and that continues today with the gospel and race relations. I figured since some of you are mad at me, I might as well keep stirring the pot and um, deal with your rejection all at once. Um, Hasn't been that bad. But uh, let me read from Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ." For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, For through him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him... You too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that You would speak that message uh, freshly, powerfully to us in this time by Your Holy Spirit. Lord, show us the reconciling work of Jesus that brought sinners like ourselves back into fellowship with you. Speak, O Lord, if your servants are listening. Amen. Here's my simple plan. It's going to take a little while this morning. I'll I'll tell you now. Um, Bible foundation from Ephesians. What is the power that we have to reconcile? Inward applications, thinking of ourselves as Americans uniquely, and then outward action. How do we respond? Uh, First, the power to reconcile. Ephesians chapter 2, earlier than I started reading, begins by stressing the universal condition of all of humanity, dead in our sins, in a position of enmity and opposition against God. That's true about everybody. And then in verse 11, Paul points specifically to the Gentiles who were also alienated from God and without hope in a unique way, apart from God's chosen people of the Old Testament. And then in verse 13, we find gospel words. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood 
of Christ. The healing of that vertical relationship with God has a direct and immediate impact on horizontal relationships, starting in verse uh, 14, the very next verse. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity, unity, out of the two, diversity, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. What are these two groups that Paul's talking about? Jew and Gentile. An animosity that had religious and cultural and racial elements, a a relationship at uh, as much at odds as any other national, cultural, religious rivalry that exists today. Jew versus Gentile. The stakes were serious, and Paul is aiming right at the heart of the racial divide, if you will, of the first century. How is it possible for conflict and animosity and finger-pointing and name-calling to be transformed into unity and reconciliation. Paul's words tell us it's only possible when we first realize that conflict and animosity and finger-pointing describes our relationship with God Himself. It always has vertical roots, creator-creature Uh, issues, because our biggest problem is not with one another. Our biggest problem, fundamental problem, is with God Himself. In our sin, we push Him away. We become alienated. We make ourselves enemies. Sin is our conflict with God, but, gospel words, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near. How? by the blood of Christ, by His sacrifice on the cross. Only then, when we root ourselves in this vertical reconciliation, only then is it at all possible for us to extend that same reconciling power of the gospel to one another in the issues that we're facing, especially today in our country. You know, we list ethnic diversity as uh, one of our five core values as a church. We don't say by that that we do it perfectly. <clears throat> we don't do it, we don't say that because we think it's a cool thing to pull off or that it's politically correct. We value ethnic diversity because we believe it proclaims loudly to the watching world that we're united not because we share common life experiences, not because we have the same skin color or even share the same political opinions. We proclaim to the world in a multi-ethnic church that we are united most deeply and for eternity because as followers of Christ, there's absolutely no difference at the foot of the cross. We're all sinners in need of salvation. And we're united because there's absolutely no difference standing outside of the empty tomb. Death and sin have been defeated for us as we trust in Jesus. And God is fulfilling His promise in making all things new, including putting to death the racism, the prejudice, the biases that exist in our hearts, as well as the idolizing of, sometimes these are the roots of prejudice, the idolizing of my race, 
my culture, my way of thinking and explaining the world. He's making all things new. He's purifying us, making us more like Jesus. The church as the collection of former enemies of God who have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, the church must lead in healing racial divides because the church alone has experienced the fullness of gospel reconciling power. And the church alone can overflow that in healing the racial divides that afflict our country. It's the power to reconcile. What is America's major divide? If you need to be woken up, I don't think you do, I'll do it with three words. Black lives matter. No rocks, <laughs> no tomatoes. Before you get upset with me, let, me, let me put that into context. If the great divide in Paul's first century was Jew and Gentile, and it was pretty serious, then the great divide in America today is still black and white. That's not the only divide. I, I'm not ignoring or minimizing other racial issues and the unique pressures and pains of other ethnic backgrounds, but the story and the experience of black Americans is unique for a, a host of reasons, but I'll simply list three. One is the history of Africans being enslaved by white masters in the American South. Number two is the, the, the issues of segregation, Jim Crow laws, in the near hundred years between uh, the end of slavery and the Civil Rights Movement. And thirdly, the very disappointing lack of progress, that's a subjective statement I recognize, in the 50 years since the Civil Rights Movement. The story and experience of black Americans is unique in this country. Some of you, when you hear Black Lives Matter, hear it as only Black Lives Matter. You might say, no, all lives matter. That's your instinct. That's what you want to shout out. That's what you want to respond with on Facebook. Always a bad thing, isn't it? I think we've all learned that. You look at the actions and the words of the BLM movement, and you reject the movement as lawless, as counterproductive, as confirming negative stereotypes, but if I may be so bold, as if I haven't already, I'd suggest that if you instantly dismiss that phrase, if you outright reject it, it's because you don't really know what it's like to be a black American. And if you're not black, how could you? Truly understanding the, the black American perspective requires personal experience of segregation, or personal experience of the lingering after effects, indirect, some of them, after effects of segregation, which include negative stereotypes and discrimination and suspicion. And for many, still in our country, who feel left behind, a vicious cycle of poverty and the breakdown of the family and crime and drug addiction and poor education and lack of job prospects and lack of hope and... The cycle repeats itself for so many, for generations. This week I reread Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail. And it shocked me, I've read it before, it shocked me how much I had not paid attention to in the past 
because I think I was reading merely as a student needing to check off an assignment and analyze it. And this week I read it in an attempt to understand. And so many things leapt out from the page at me, including the reason King wrote the letter in the first place. It had always escaped me. He wrote it as a response to eight clergy leaders who had written a letter that ran on the front page that was printed the morning he woke up in jail, the first morning. They wrote that letter on the front page, clergy, churchmen, leaders, to criticize King for protesting the previous day when he was arrested, Good Friday, April 1963. And their message was to him, in a frustrating way, you're not being patient You need to negotiate. You need to wait. I'd like you to to listen to a long excerpt from King's response because you and I need to hear the heart of a hurting man. Perhaps it is easy for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. But when you have seen vicious mobs lynch your mothers and fathers at will and drown your sisters and brothers at whim, when you have seen hate-filled policemen curse, kick, and even kill your black brothers and sisters, when you see this vast majority of your 20 million Negro brothers smothering in an airtight cage of poverty in the midst of an affluent society, when you suddenly find your tongue twisted and your speech stammering as you seek to explain to your six-year-old daughter why she can't go to the public amusement park that has just been advertised on television and see tears welling up in her eyes when she is told that Fun Town is closed to colored children. You ever have to tell your little daughter that? I haven't. And see ominous clouds of inferiority beginning to form in her little mental sky and see her beginning to distort her personality by developing an unconscious bitterness toward white people. When you have to concoct an answer for a five-year-old son who is asking, Daddy, why do white people treat colored people so mean? When you take a cross-country drive and find it necessary to sleep night after night in, an uncomfortable corners of your, in the uncomfortable corners of your automobile because no motel will accept you. When you are humiliated day in and day out by nagging signs, reading white and colored. When your first name becomes nigger, your middle name becomes boy, however old you are, and your last name becomes John, and your wife and mother are never given their respected title, Mrs. When you are harried by day and haunted by night by the fact that you are a Negro living constantly at tiptoe stance, never quite knowing what to expect next and are plagued with inner fears and outer resentments when you are forever fighting a degenerating sense of nobodiness, then you will understand why we find it difficult to wait. There comes a time when the cup of endurance runs over and men are no longer willing to be plunged into the abyss of despair. Do you know what any of that is like? Some of you do. Some of you do, even if through the eyes of an older relative. And some of you would say, that 
still describes parts of America today. If you don't know, which is the vast majority of us in this room, then I would submit to you, we cannot fully understand what gives rise to a protest movement like Black Lives Matter. Please hear me loud and clear. I am not advocating for the movement. I am not stamping it with a seal of approval and saying what what goes on in BLM events and what comes out of BLM rhetoric is okay. I'm simply saying that the phrase itself represents a valid cry of pain because discrimination against black Americans continues to demean and depersonalize and demoralize. And I'm simply saying to us as church family, made one in Christ, that what's behind that cry deserves to be more carefully and humbly considered. And that requires a willingness to ask questions, uncomfortable ones at times, and to enter into the very different life experiences of others. Here's one more stinging indictment from King's letter. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. And remember to whom he was writing those words, the church. I think we need to still hear him today. Even in a multi-ethnic, gospel-centered church in 2016 in very diverse Bergen County. We need that message. It's not just for people out there who are the racists, who treat people differently. The calling of the church is to understand these things and then to move towards one another in genuine, deep, gospel-fueled reconciliation. Lastly, the, the impact of perspective. This was the toughest section for me to prepare, not because I worry about your reaction, um, but because uh, there is so much that needs to be discussed, and I'm not sure I've chosen the right stuff to start us. But can we agree together? We need to start somewhere. Amen? This past week, I asked a couple of dozen GRC members to... Um, fill out an uh, informal survey. I had six or seven questions on race that I asked them to um, uh, give answers to. And 18 people responded, a mix of black, white, Asian, Latino members of GRC. And let me say, I know it's not a scientific instrument. I know that not every person who represents that particular race speaks for every other person in their race. But this is just a start, Right? It's a start with the gospel of grace in a church that so many of the respondents, and I think most of us would say in a church that is the most diverse church we've ever been a part of. God has done this. This is a good place to start. This is a good laboratory to move towards one another in gospel reconciliation, standing on the gospel. Question number one was, when you first visited GRC, what was your impression of the ethnic racial makeup of the congregation? Typically, non-Asians, first impression, no surprise, 
is this is not a very diverse church. It's mostly Asian. And most Asians think, wow, so diverse. It's less than 99% Asian. (laughs) This is just what I was looking for. What's my point? Perspective makes a big impact, doesn't it? Depending on where you're coming from. One white guy said he, he did not even notice for quite a while that there were a lot of Asians. Um, he also thought we were Pentecostal until we started baptizing babies, but no, no, no I'm, I'm teasing about that. Um, but I, I found that uh, refreshing that someone said I didn't even notice. Uh, because hear, hear me say this in, in the right intent, colorblindness eventually is, is a fruit of the Spirit, I think. Not to say that we ignore the distinctions and cultural backgrounds that God has uniquely uh, enabled us to experience. Those are beautiful uh, colors of diversity. But to say, you know, I was hanging out with a bunch of folks last night at dinner time, and um, it didn't even occur to me that this person was this and this person was that. That's a beautiful thing. Perspective matters. A few years ago, I was talking with a pastor friend about the multi-ethnic identity of our church. I told him I know a lot of non-Asians over the years have walked in, have been startled at the amount of Asian faces, and haven't come back because of it. And it's not just the faces in the seats. It's also that it's not a typical thing to see an Asian face in leadership. My friend's instant reaction was, I don't believe that. I think that's your insecurity. Ouch. Perspective matters a lot. I chose not to share with him how little he understands of the minority experience. And perhaps that's my responsibility today to go to my brother and help him. Have you ever wondered what it's like for a black person to walk into GRC? A few of the survey respondents helped me. It takes a lot of courage. Not uniquely, not alone. Some of you have required courage for different reasons to walk in here. But I'm just pointing out, going back to America's great divide and trying to apply that to our context a little bit. How will I be received? Will I get stares? Will I be treated differently? Well, I sense disapproval. That question of fit goes far beyond style of music or whether it's okay or not to talk back to the preacher and give him feedback, which actually, you know, just for the record, it is. I'd rather have to shout over your feedback than to wake up comatose congregation members. Talk to me all you want in, in my preaching. But do you know that some of your black brothers and sisters here at GRC still don't feel a sense of belonging. By the way, one of them uh, told me that the term African-American is really a product of political correctness and that the term black is far more inclusive. And that has, others may disagree, but that has given me a a bit of a sense of freedom to talk about black Americans um, rather than African-Americans. I'm learning. A month ago, I pointed to Michael Lowe's New York Times article describing a racial insult shouted at him and his family while walking on a sidewalk on the Upper East Side. 
It was incredibly ironic. I shared in my pastor's desk article that only a couple of weeks later, I had my own experience jogging in my own hometown. A number of you expressed empathy because that incident stirred up some of your own painful memories. But I'm not hurt by this. I'm sharing this with you. What surprised me was that I got no emails that asked questions, that wondered why, that sought understanding of an unfamiliar experience. Was it too uncomfortable? Was it so far beyond your reality? Did any of you, like Ann Coulter's instantaneous reaction, doubt that it actually happened? Perspective makes a big difference. Asians, Latinos, blacks, Get it because you've had your own such experiences. I know that. Please don't hear me criticizing Caucasians or majority culture. I married a country white girl and I'm still very glad that I did. (laughs) But if the church is going to lead in racial reconciliation, we need to start by making an effort to understand First, myself, yourself. Understand that my background shapes my outlook. If you're Caucasian, understand that majority thinking also has cultural roots. It's not just the American way. It's not just the way things should be. It has cultural roots. And if you're a racial minority, don't live with a chip on your shoulder. Extend grace Overlook an offense, assume naivete rather than intentional discrimination. I think that's where the church of Jesus Christ can lead with one another by offering the benefit of the doubt because your security does not come from people affirming the outward man or woman. Your security comes from standing upon who Jesus says you are because you've been bought by his blood. And so you can take some what seems like disapproval, and, and, and not say it's because I'm Asian or black or Latino, but that person just didn't hear my greeting and overlook an offense. And then secondly, in understanding, we need to understand one another. One family in our church invited us to uh, dinner along with two other black families, not from GRC, but we had some common circles. And... Uh, the goal in the invitation was we're going to talk about race relations. We're going to talk about hot-button events like Ferguson, the Eric Garner situation, police shootings, and uh, we want to hear what each other has to say uh, as Christians who submit ourselves to the authority of God's Word. And one of the most important benefits we gained, Cedar and I, was the balanced, humble, yet painful personal history and experience that these families shared. One dad in particular uh, said this, you got to understand, every black dad has to have that conversation with his son before the teen years. How stores are going to assume he's a shoplifter. How cops are going to be keeping an extra careful watch on him in his car. How people on the sidewalk may be suspicious and fearful. 
in the moment, I thought to myself, and, and the other dad, who's Caucasian, thought, I will never have to have that conversation with my son. And therefore, I don't really get what it's like to be a black American. How could I? An incredibly encouraging on one hand, but sobering on the other experience face-to-face. Let me share this too. If you are from a minority background and others are hearing my exhortation challenge to understand people other than them, and someone else asks you to uh, ask you with humility and earnestness, in, in a spirit of, I, I want to understand, I want to learn, asks you about your life experience, asks you about your perspective on the church, on race relations, on, uh, on whatever, please take the time to respond rather than feel singled out. But p- please understand, I, I said, I, I abdicated responsibility with my pastor friend. That's on me. Not to lash out at him and say, you are a a bigot, but to say, can I help you understand how I see things very differently than you because I I grew up as a Chinese-American kid, even in New Jersey, not in the middle of the breadbasket. That is the only way we can educate one another, cultivate empathy, and overflow gospel love. You know that last week's election had a significant racial element. You don't need me to tell you that. A September article in The Atlantic claimed that Trump's likely voters were 90% white. That's what we would expect from the media reports. But the Pew Research Center analyzed exit poll data, presumably more accurate than pre-election polls, and the results are surprising. 29% of Latinos voted for Trump, not much different than the percentage who voted for McCain and Romney. And Trump won 8% of black votes, better than McCain in 2008 and equal to Bush in 2000. And Trump did marginally better than Romney with Asian voters. That's the flip side of this issue. Don't believe everything you hear. This isn't whites versus blacks, and the whites won in the Donald Trump election. On the other hand... There's a lot of pain today, less than a week later. Some of you voted for Trump, and you're satisfied, content, maybe thrilled. Others of you voted for Clinton and are disappointed, but you've moved on. You've accepted. But do you know that there's a very sizable third group who may be sitting next to you worshiping Jesus this morning? They're still in grief. More importantly, are you willing to understand why they're still in grief? It's not because their hopes were in Hillary Clinton. It's because Donald Trump represents a blow to the gut. I heard this from a bunch of people this past week. You feel targeted as a minority. Trump's message seems to fuel or at least validate the woman who shouted at Mike Lowe, go back to China or Mexico or Egypt. 
you wonder if hard-fought civil rights and minority gains towards equal treatment will be quickly lost. The suddenly loud racist voices seem like a time warp back to an ugly past. One of my survey respondents still vividly remembers an event that's 40 plus years old when she visited grandma in the south and went to the doctor and had to use the door labeled colored in the 1970s because the Klan had run the one black doctor out of town and there were no other options. And when the white patient came in on the other side, the doctor left the black patient to go attend to the person who always had priority in the 1970s. You don't forget that ever. I am not saying that a Donald Trump administration will bring a return to that. I pray and I actually um, optimistically believe that it's going to be better than we fear. I'm simply asking, by bringing this up, do you understand that your brothers and sisters are hurting? And are you willing to ask why? In one article I read, the author wrote, the Bible exhorts us to weep with those who weep. It does not tell us to judge whether they should be weeping. Wow. One last word from Martin Luther King Jr. that still preaches today. Remember that he was writing to the church. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. But the judgment of God is upon the church today as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Grace Redeemer Church, that preaches today, 50 years later. What do we call this sacrifice? Self-centeredness self-oriented demand that the way I see the world and race and culture and politics is the right way. We're called to lay that down. We're called to lay down our lives for the sake of others. We're called to um, consider others better than ourselves, Philippians chapter 2. How is that possible in a world with deepening divisions all around us? Listen to John Piper, whose words must be soaked. I know they're soaked with the wisdom of Ephesians 2, the way we started this morning. Quote, the bloodline of Jesus Christ is deeper than the bloodlines of race. The death and resurrection of the Son of God for sinners is the only sufficient power to bring the bloodlines of race into the single bloodline of the cross. There it is. As you Apply this gospel-reconciling power to yourself, your own life. As you seek to understand one another's differences and celebrate unity in Christ, here's a last bit of wisdom from Maya Angelou. I did then what I knew how to do. Now that I know better, I do better. 
GRC, my hope and prayer is that through Ephesians 2 and some of the experiences I've shared this morning, you and I know a little better so that we can do better towards one another. Equally created in the image of God to reflect His glory, equally offered salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, your blood was shed for Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female. We are all equal at the foot of the cross in need of the purifying, reconciling, saving power of your blood. Lord, as your church, as your blood-bought people, formerly enemies, now made sons and daughters, fill us with your spirit. Give us courage to move towards one another in humility and understanding and to show the world that reconciliation is possible because you have done it. And we're simply called to talk about it, to share it, to overflow it. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.